Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors, episode 105. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join us. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetutortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. April's prize is a copy of King and Collector, Henry VIII and the Art of Kingship by Linda Collins and Siobhan Clark. Thank you to the History Press UK for sponsoring this wonderful prize. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about propaganda in Tudor England is Mark Wilson. Mark is a current PhD candidate at the University of Roehampton in London. He studies part-time as a distance learner whilst he teaches history and is an elected local councillor in Solihull, West Midlands. He has taught in various educational settings for 14 years, and he previously worked in academic libraries in London and the West Midlands. Mark's research interests include the interaction between early modern written prose and poetry and political thought and power in Elizabethan England. Mark's current research focuses on printed propaganda, which intersected with contemporary parliamentary proceedings from 1571 to 1581. He focuses on William Cecil, Lord Burley from 1572, and his management of the Elizabethan realm, and how he attempted to protect this realm by persuading Elizabeth I to act against enemies of Elizabethan England, particularly Mary Stuart and potential foreign adversaries in the Netherlands, France, or Spain. Our conversation is coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
Welcome to Talking Tutors, Mark. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Natalie. Yeah, it's a, a privilege to be on the uh, the podcast, and I, I look forward to uh, sharing a few nuggets uh, yeah. as we go on. Fantastic. Now, I suppose a good place to start would be by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Yes, well, uh, I'm Mark Wilson, and I am a PhD research student currently, part-time at the University of Roehampton. I'm being uh, supervised by Professors Glyn Parry and Professor Ted Valance, and Roehampton's uh, a university based in southwest London, but I am a distance learner because I am not, I don't live in or around London. Uh, I live in Solly Hull, a place called Bentley Heath, just outside Solly Hull, and I'm uh, basically in the Forest of Arden area, so... Um, I'm about 12 miles north of Stratford, 12 miles south of Birmingham, quite close to Warwick. And there's a lot of Tudor and Reformation history around here. Uh, there's the Gunpowder Plotters, there's Baddersley Clinton, where uh, Father John Gerard hid from the uh, the recusant hunters. Uh, there was also the, uh, there's obviously Shakespeare from Stratford, the Earl of Leicester at Kenilworth, which is about 10 miles from here as well. So there's a lot of medieval Tudor history around, around this area. Absolutely. Actually, I have Battersea Clinton on my list. I have not visited yet and it looks absolutely stunning. So hopefully when I can jump on a plane again, I'll be I'll be visiting that house. Yeah, well, it's about three miles from where I'm sitting. Oh, lucky duck. <laughs> yeah. Lucky duck. Yeah. So what um, sparked your interest in Tudor history? Well, I've always had a, a, a deep interest in history and a passion for it uh, from from being quite young been interested in quite a lot of things but specifically history and it was sparked as a boy at primary school this particular sort of late medieval early modern I suppose you might say history um, when we studied the Tudors and, and the great plague of London and the fire of London as well of 1666 and I was just really fascinated by a different world I think trying to understand it and trying to sort of picture it in my mind and I, I have a fashion a fascination for London's history as well I used to go to London quite a lot as a, as a child and then later lived there for nine years so that was great to, to be there and of course later on with all of the archives etc it was good but yeah I, I was I was very interested in it and then I, I went on to do uh, A-levels in history and English literature, which is a little bit how I've come to with, with this research really and I then did an English literature and history degree as well and I've done an MA and an MPhil since then and PGCE because I'm teaching in history I have, a, I, I, am a, I have a teacher's background as well I've got sort of over time interest I've always been quite politically minded I'm currently a councillor in Solihull I represent the Green Party in Solihull and so I've had an I mean, an interesting political thought and action as well and what motivates people to behave and, and publish things in a certain way so that sparked my interest even further. So I think I think for Tudor and early modern historians, I think there's a real big, especially around this time, the Elizabethan period is quite obviously rich in work for literary scholars as well as, you know, political and social historians and, and cultural historians, you know, because of the plays and the poetry, the prose. And a lot of that was political and religious as well in, you know, a lot of confessional splits, of course, across Europe at the time. So when that, those are the things which have really, really interested me. And I think this particular time, around 1570, as we will see is a kind of a watershed for England and English history and how it how England sort of portrayed itself or identified I should say more itself with confessionalization in terms of the Protestant Catholic divide and, and where it was going from there on in and, and I'll try and demonstrate that. 
Fantastic. There is a lot that we could talk about, but we've we've kind of decided to focus our talk on Mary Stuart and anti-Marian propaganda and polemical writing during Elizabeth's reign and how this was connected to anti-Catholic feeling in the 1572 Parliament. But before we dive in, I think it'd be really useful for myself and our listeners if you could maybe paint a picture for us of what was going on at this time, both at home and maybe just touch on abroad as well. What happened between 1569 and 1572 to provoke such strong anti-Catholic sentiment? Well, I think we can we can actually jump back a little bit before before that, and I will refer back beyond, beyond fifteen sixty nine sure, yeah. um, as well to, to because uh, we're in the counter counter Reformation Europe at, the, at this time. It was a different Europe to the one of even Henry the Eighth, uh, Francois Premier, the French King, um, and Charles the the Fifth. The Reformation had really made it made a leap through the fifteen fifties. You know Calvin and as as well as Luther and and other reformers and that confessional split concerned the the Catholic Church, which wanted to regain some kind of control over the, the confessional identities and the spiritual identities of Europeans as they saw them. You know, sort of sons and daughters almost of the Roman Church. So what the what the Catholic bishops did, they, they organised the Council of Trent, which was basically three meetings in Trent in, in southern Austria and, and, and other places. It did move, but it gets the name the Council of Trent because the first ones were in Trent. And that lasted until about 1563. And from then on, the international Catholic community uh, as well, the changing scene, it, it, it possessed this new stimulant of re religious ideology. And that started to inform policy with contemporary politics and, and that. And, and it became a cosmic struggle then between right and wrong, the true and false churches, and both sides, you know, and, and the apocalypse played a part so you know in other words if everybody goes catholic and and you're a protestant you think it's the end of the world you know the the, the judge last judgment is coming the four horses of the apocalypse will, will be will be visiting whether that's plague famine pestilence or war whatever and that influence does sort of vary from court to court because this then policy shapes the rulers of of catholic europe particularly philip of spain and then that encourages a more, the Council of Trent actually encouraged a more aggressive counter-reformation response to Lutheran and Calvinist incursions across Europe. So I'll start with England and then I'll briefly touch on the Low Countries because that, they're quite important. The Netherlands, modern day Holland and Belgium and France as well. Well, I'll do France first and, and, and then Holland and what is Holland and Belgium today? Then it was known as the Low Countries or the, or, you know, the Netherlands. So England and Scotland, we need to jump back a little bit to the earlier 1560s when Mary returns to Scotland in 1561. Uh, she's invited by the Bishop of Ross, John Leslie, and his hope was that they would restore Catholicism after Presbyterian attack. So there'd been a bit of a civil war. Mary of Guise had, had died as well, the regent, and the French had left Scotland and Calvinist lords came in and, and sort of took control by that time. But then Francis II, Francis II of France died, who was Mary's uh, husband, uh, died and she was then left a little bit bereft in France, but decided that they, the decision was really made for her to go back to Scotland and, and, and reign over Scotland. But it was, things had changed and it was a, a Presbyterian, quite a Calvinist. Scotland was a lot more Calvinist. But Mary's return, had she had to construct a government, which was a mix of different, different confessional identities. 
you know, Catholic and Protestant. But uh, Mary herself did think that she was probably also the rightful Queen of England as well, Scotland, to her own arms with the arms of England on her banners prior to this. And this was while she was still in France when she, uh, she, she'd done this. She had that right through back to her grandmother, Margaret Tudor. And so she was believed by certain people, not all Catholics, most mainly Catholics, to be the, the, the rightful Queen. Another issue was Anne Boleyn, and she was seen as illegitimate. Uh, she was an adulterer and a heretic, by, seen by Catholics, so she wasn't. Elizabeth, therefore, was seen as a, as, as a bastard and, and you know, illegitimate and, and a usurper. So Mary had the, the right. So with the, 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 thing, the things with, with that, Mary quartering her with the royal arms of England and Scotland, as well as France, that ratchets up the threat Mary represented to Elizabeth, and this was noted as well at the time. So during the 1560s as well, Mary's rule of Scotland also, there was still factional opposition as well to her rule in Scotland. And we come to the Mary's marriage to Darnley, which does really sort of stoke a lot of the, the propaganda that we will be looking at. Around February 7th, 1565, uh, 17th of February 1565, at Wemys Castle, that's when Mary met Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, and she, she saw him and took quite a fancy to him. He was the greatest long lad she'd ever seen. And then she was married at Holyrood Palace on the 29th of July, 1565. They had a papal dispensation for the marriage because they, they were, were first cousins as well. As, as time went on, the marriage was, was quite unhappy and Darnley proved to be an arrogant alcoholic. And Mary's uh, main secretary, David Rizzio, who spent quite a lot of time with, with Mary. With that, she um, she sort of, uh, you know, made Darnley quite jealous as a, as a result. Darnley gets jealous. And this is reported back to Cecil, William Cecil, who was then the secretary, and he's later Lord Burley, that Rizzio was a growing influence. And Thomas Randolph, who's the English ambassador to Scotland at the time, reports this back. And it was suggested that it, even Rizzio was the real father of Mary's unborn child, which would be James, of course. Prince James, later James the Sixth of Scotland, first of England. And it was reported that he might be the, the father of, of, of James, which was, which was completely without, you know, it was just a complete rumour without any substance. So that triggers the dislike of Rizzio, and Rizzio is murdered quite brutally, stabbed 56 times. Darnley sort of eggs on certain people, and Andrew Kerr of Fordenside stops Mary intervening by holding uh, a pistol to the Queen's side and, and pointing it at a swelling belly with, you know, pregnant belly. So that, that happens to Rizzio, and then... The factions continue. The Earl of Bothwell returns as well. James Hepburn, who plays a part, he returns from France at this point. He's been in exile. A, a faction does appear then. There's, you've got Bothwell's people and, and Darnley's, and there's a, there's a struggle. And this goes on until Darnley is murdered. And he's in the Kirk of Field, which was a, a house on some former monastery land in Edinburgh. And the house he's staying in is surrounded and part of it is blown up with gunpowder. Darnley does escape and his servant escapes. Now, it's either through a, a back door or down a, a window, which was probably facing not the garden area. Uh, there was a garden. Uh, some reports say he went out the window facing a garden. But other, it's more likely, and John Guy has argued, that he, he went out of a window facing Thebes Row alongside a walled section of the grounds. 
whichever way he left, he was kept caught and, and strangled with the sleeves of his nightshirt because he, he it was 1am in the morning he'd, and, and he'd heard noises and, and escaped. And Mary is, is away as well at the time in Holyrood and she is obviously very closely implicated with this murder. And very quickly, she decides to try and defend her, obviously look for people who, who are defensive of her. The Protestant Earl of Murray is a, a, a different matter and the Protestant Calvinist factions want Mary gone and Bothwell too. So there's and that and Mary decides probably very bad mistake or either that or she's forced. She ends up with Bothwell and is but then is later taken into captivity and at Carberry Hill, Bothwell and Mary make a stand the following year in June uh, of 1568 and th their small force is defeated and she flees across the border into Cumbria. And so by and by 15 72 she's in captivity in england but the issue is that by 1569 uh, she's now a catholic figurehead for a lot of catholic northern englishmen so england is far from being a catholic country in fifth sorry a protestant country in 1572 england is very much very split and the north and the west of england are particularly catholic culturally at least and in 1569, there is a, a, a rising in the north. It's partly religious and it also has political implications. And it has been claimed the rebellion was in no small part a religious uprising with ardent popular support. So we, from that starting point, it is possible to con contextualise the printed responses to the rebellions of autumn 1569. So during October and November 1569, Thomas Percy, the 7th Earl of Northumberland, and Charles Neville, the 6th Earl of Westmoreland, had failed, led a failed uprising, or rather a conspiracy to overthrow the current regime and place Mary Stuart as successor to the Protestant English Queen. They rally popular support across the northern regions of England and march under the banners of the Five Wounds of Christ and a flag of those who wish to better Commonwealth, which held a motto, God Speed the Plough. So the badge of the Five Wounds was seen by loyalists as, as treason. It had been used in the Pilgrimage of Grace as well in 1536 during Henry's reign uh, in that rebellion. So it would have been an incredible sight to people, to, to people and it was also a slight on the 1559 Elizabethan church settlement as well, which had, of course, put Elizabeth as um, supreme governor of the Church of England. So the rebels claimed they were the Queen's most lawful and true subjects, and they proclaimed that they, the diverse or various new set-up nobles were to blame for the rebellions and protest at their good intentions, but they also used religion as an issue. They opposed the new heresies and called men all men from 16 to 60 to join them as your duty towards god binds you for the setting forth of his true and catholic religion on november the 14th they rode into durham they entered the town's huge cathedral overturned the communion table and celebrated mass and the religious zeal of the uprising is difficult to deny therefore and the rebellion begins and it's pretty bad the northern earls are fairly some support maybe from philip of spain or, or the duke of alba at least in um, in holland but they never got that and and the rebellion failed and they went into exile and the earl of northumberland was captured later and, and, and executed following fairly quickly behind the uh, the northern Reve rebellion of 1569 Regnans in excelsis which was a papal bull 
was issued on the 25th of February 1570 by Pope Pius V and this ex excommunicated the Queen declaring Elizabeth the pretended Queen of England and servant of crime to be a heretic and releasing all her subjects from any allegiance to her and excommunicating any that obeyed her orders. This had lasting effects on Englishmen and women and the Treason Act was then extended in 1571 in Parliament to make Catholic worship via mass and holding of Catholic books a treasonable offence. And this then sparks also a campaign of propaganda as well. And following hard on the heels of, of this is Mary's implication in the Rodolfi plot. So this is a plot which informs a lot of today's talk really and confirms fears that Mary Queen of Scots was a cog in the general wheel of Catholic international and domestic conspiracy and returning to Mary herself who apparently played a little part in the plan to marry her to Thomas Howard the Duke of Norfolk. Robert Dudley the Earl of Leicester and Sir Francis Throckmorton had at some point in 1569 earlier on in theory at least supported a union between Mary and the Duke of Norfolk as Mary's status made her the second person in the realm so she married is the Duke of Norfolk. She's she's the second person. She probably has less power as a, as a, as a, a consort queen. Uh, the Scottish lords also opined that Mary would be safe and married to an English peer, so it keeps Mary out of Scotland. So you can see the, the logic behind that. But however, Norfolk then is discredited by peripheral involvement in the Northern Rising of, of 1569 in the autumn. And then he also does some very, there's some very odd behaviour from the Duke of Norfolk, whether it's uh, guilt and being on the edge. He's written letters to Westmoreland and Northumberland, but he, he leaves court without any warning around August 1569 and, and goes back to Kenninghall, his Norfolk estate, and, and leaves London. Elizabeth is furious and has him arrested and imprisoned. So he's imprisoned from August 1569 to July 1570. And this, obviously, she gets, she finds out through letters and so on, and people people give feed her the information that Norfolk is involved in this plot. Leicester has to really make excuses as well pretty quickly to, to get himself out of the mire, and it's probably from him where maybe a lot of the rumours starts to try and push the blame away from himself and, and, and Throckmorton. Norfolk gets quieter, you know, he's in prison, but he does continue to correspond with Mary then in cipher. He sent her rings at Christmas and in midsummer 1570. Almost at the same time, on the 23rd of June 1570, he drafted a voluntary written submission which he acknowledged his error, craved Queen Elizabeth's forgiveness and bound himself by his bond of allegiance to her. And he said, never to deal with in that cause of marriage of the Queen of Scots or in any other case cause belonging to, to her, but as your majesty shall command me. Okay, so that's going on but also at the same time that a Florentine banker called Roberto Rodolfi who was already known to the government and the court the Earl of Arundel and also John Lumley had, had, uh, Sir John Lumley they had actually had previous dealings with him with over land and finances uh, you know borrowing money to buy land in, uh, in, in the early 1560s so he was well known he was on the periphery of the court he, at least he knew what was going on in the court if he had no particular involvement or influence you know he was known but he was still at large um, at this point. Now, Rodolfi had tried to get involved in the plot and he'd seemed to stay a little bit beyond the clutches of, of, of William Cecil's intelligence network. But then he hatches a further plot with all this in mind it's had, and he's had four stages and, and importantly the Rodolfi plot is at one point seen and Geoffrey Parker's uh, essay on this shows that the Rodolfi plot was part of a bigger scheme from Philip uh, to get you know Catholicism restored in England 
perhaps via via Mary getting married. You know, it was an idea that they had. Um, so the plot uh, would have had financial backing from Pope Pius V, who issued the uh, excommunication, and Philip II of Spain, the Duke of Alba, Spanish Viceroy in the Netherlands, and they were to dispatch between six and 10,000 men to invade England at either the Harwich or Portsmouth. And as soon as Spanish troops landed, Norfolk and his supporters were to rise in rebellion, seize Elizabeth, rescue Mary and set her on the English throne, married to the Duke of Norfolk. The plot did fail. Philip later balked at supporting it. He thought it was a bit, you know, impractical. And Norfolk's letters are then intercepted. So the Rodolphe plot fails. Sir Francis Walsingham does interrogate Rodolphe, but then lets him go. Whether that's all part of some other conspiracy is hard to decipher. But uh, Rodolphe then disappears after 1571. The main point is Elizabeth then gives up all ideas of restoring Mary to the Scottish throne. Sees that it, her reputation is blackened with this because of the intrigue. Cecil is using this then in, in a series of pleas to the political nation to warn of conspiracy against the sovereign. So that's what's going on in England at this point. I know it's a bit long and convoluted at, at times, but uh, that's the nature of uh, Elizabethan yeah, history, exactly. political history. Um, so France, I'll briefly touch on France and the Low Countries. So France, by the late 1560, was embroiled in the, their third religious civil war by this point. There'd been various battles between the, the, the Catholic factions and, and the Huguenots. And it had begun in the town of Varsy in the Champagne region of eastern France in March 1562, when Henri Duc de Guise came across an illegal Protestant gathering in the town and his troops ended up massacring unharmed Huguenot worshippers and they were in a barn. I think the barn was set fire to and they ran out and were shot. And, and in Vassy, I've been to Vassy and there's a, a little museum on the site of a barn. There's a 17th century barn on the site and there's a little museum commemorating, well, it's about the Reformation basically, but how Vassy fits into it all. And uh, anyway, the Huguenots were, were massacred and then that started a you know a sort of a, a civil war it was the first there were then attacks on catholics and so on but guy's brother importantly was the cardinal of lorraine who was mary's uncle and actually there's a place de marie stewart in Vassy as well underlying this is guy this was all guy's territory uh, the Prince of Conde, Louis de Bourbon, was named as protector of the Huguenots then in, in, in response in December 1562. And as I said, there were, there were other attacks on Catholics as well and, you know, and, and so on. And, but also social and economic tensions also operate alongside confessional and, and religious ones. This is pretty much the same across early modern Europe, including Elizabethan England. Often, you know, there are other issues that drive confessional arguments. By the autumn of 1568, the Third Religious War had started and continued until the summer of 1570, when the Treaty of Saint-Germain was signed. There was an uneasy peace throughout the French kingdoms from 1570 to 1572. Elizabeth attempted to keep the balance of power in check by allying with the French and avoiding war, mainly as the English treasury could not afford it. And by signing the Treaty of Blois in April 1572, Elizabeth had effectively placed Mary out of gaining French Valois aid, and this weakened her Guise relatives as well, who were still had been plotting of releasing Mary around the time of the Rodolphe plot, plus afterwards too. So, so in in the Netherlands, no longer did the Habsburgs rule over the still feudal lordships, which had had scattered territories, but Philip II 
who was by now actually increasingly immobile and mainly in Madrid, working almost like a bureaucrat, now ruled over considerably more centralised Spanish-centred domain with a Spanish grandee, and mentioned him before, Duke of Third Duke of Alba, Fernando Alvarez de Toledo y Pimentel, who was known as the Iron Duke, and he was based in Brussels with a restored Spanish government. So in effect, the Netherlands were now a semi-colonial dependence and not just a scatter of semi-autonomous provinces and cities. They were, it was a consolidated Spanish-led state, in effect. Like France, there were social and economic issues, which in 1566, along with religious turmoil and protest at Spanish rule, broke out into outright rebellion. The Duke of Alba had arrived to crush the rebels with 10,000 troops in 1566 to 57. And by 1570, Council of Troubles was in its third year of operation. That ran from 1560 to 74. It's also known by the Dutch as the Council of Blood. And this was where a lot of the Protestants involved in the rebellions uh, were punished uh, quite brutally as well and across all, all levels of society. So this was a... Another example of counter-reformation policy at work on England's doorstep, threateningly poised just over the North Sea. And then the Spanish in October 1570 welcomed some of the northern rebels as well, from the, North, the English northern rising into Antwerp and other Cecil-inspired talks with the German Lutheran princes to wean the balance of power to get a foothold maybe in the Netherlands. They failed at this time. So the balance of power had to see England allied to an extent with France seek a possible future Anglo-French raid maybe on the on the Netherlands itself or at least have some impact there. Philip's grand strategy for the realms of Protestant Europe was simple. The restoration of the Roman church was the target. So that's the background at this point. Yeah, that's quite extraordinary, isn't it? And you can very clearly see why Elizabeth and her advisors were getting quite nervous. I'm getting quite nervous just listening about it. So obviously this must have had an effect on propaganda at that time. So what kind of propaganda do these all these incredible, extraordinary events trigger in England? Yes, well, um, that's an, an interesting question. And basically the over, what, what I can say is the overall context, obviously this is important how we place Mary Stewart now as we've, alluded to and also propaganda by people like uh, George Buchanan who we shall meet. So we may deduce Elizabethan policy was centred on what Alec Riri has called the politics of fear as you've just mentioned and the, a lot of the feeling was the result of a construction of a kind of a two-way relationship between anxiety and assurance and for many Protestant polemicists and this was John Fox who was the author of Acts and Monuments the fear of a return to the days of Mary Tudor and the persecutions, the burnings of the 1550s were, were clearly in their minds and they were seeing what was happening in Holland, for example, with the Council of Blood and that frightened quite a few people and news items coming over and, and dispatches were, were telling of what was happening over there. The dynamic of play was the certainty of pro a Protestant godly victory and the fear of strength and the enemy of the Popish Antichrist and the fear of popery is apparent in much of the polemical and propaganda source literature, which was a political standpoint at this particular time. These plots and, and the bull uh, against Elizabeth and the, and the Northern Rising, they sort of develop into an apocalyptic view that sees England at the centre of a Protestant bulwark against the Antichrist, and the Antichrist is, is being the Pope. So it's been suggested that simply to be a Catholic savoured sedition in the context of, of, of this time. Conyers Reid has said, uh, he's argued that they were justified, uh, you know, as, as you've just probably agreed with Conyers Reid there. Yes, I think I just did. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, um, and, you know, they they were also seminary priests. They were they were uh, suspicious of disseminating potentially traitorous doctrines. Um, and after the legislation in Parliament of 1571 uh, that was passed, that made hearing mass a treasonable offence, and also you know, sort of supporting the bull was a treasonable offence, as was speaking about the succession on the throne, you know, and, and removing Elizabeth. Any talk of that, whether in print or, or verbal, was a treasonable offence. Thomas Drant was no, under no illusion where Catholic loyalties lay, suggesting they were all traitors, and he preached, true and two and two make four, that when the sun is in the midst of a heaven, it is noontime, so it is infallibly true that no perfect papist can be to any Christian prince a good subject. So that feeds us into the way we're going. And, and at this point as well, I think in, in England, it's just before we look at the propaganda, a good idea to, to look at how Catholics are being, their, their position, so we know that now it's treasonable offence and it's, it's, it's treason to, to hear mass, etc. It was also, so a lot of historians have suggested that this balance, the balance of power around 1570 to 72 switches against Catholics and the Catholic community. And it's a time of watershed uh, as well. And then it also says that this is the start of the mass of Englishmen turning their backs on Rome. That's what Michael Graves has argued. Now, that means really that this is the the start of what we can see probably culminating maybe in the Civil War of the 1640s. Um, that's what I would argue, that it all starts in, at this particular time is, is, is very, very key in English history because it doesn't, it's not necessarily Charles I or whatever, but these feelings rumble on through the generations um, leading up to the Civil War and then on to the Glorious Revolution afterwards because a lot of this, Elizabeth was seen as a, you know, a, always looked back on as a as a monarch who would defend Protestantism and, and so on against Catholic incursions. And, of course, that ends with uh, James II going into exile and William of Orange coming and Mary and, and so on at the Glorious Revolution. I think this is the period where this happens. Can't really tell how, how loyal English Catholics were. There were a lot of them who would have probably agreed with Mary being on the throne, but that equally a lot of them would have thought that Elizabeth was the rightful monarch put there by God and we, sh and we should be loyal to our monarch. They had a lot of different views. I think the argument is Catholics, you can't put them in a box at this point. You know, it's very difficult. They've been told by the Pope that they should be, you know, loyal to, to Rome, but they're English people, they're Englishmen and women, and they want to be loyal to who they see as the anointed monarch on the throne, Elizabeth. They're in a quandary as well, and it's not clear-cut. The government does produce a propaganda campaign after this, um, after the Papal Bull and, the, and, and Ridolfi and so on, and the Northern Rebellion. And... The consequences are grave as well. So lots of rumour mongers and tale bearers created a lot of alarm through taverns and marketplaces about how the rebellion was going, especially in areas away from the north. So that needed to be counteracted with official stories and reports regarding the rebellion. So sort of the, the officialdom has to take over at this point. And James Lowers has illustrated how the homily played a reportant role in the government's propaganda campaign. And Archbishop Parker and his chaplains prepared a homily against disobedience and willful rebellion, which was a six-part sermon complete with a prayer and thanksgiving. The homilies themselves served to take the debate into the parishes, then spread the warnings of rebellion to the general populace, whilst also emphasising the treasonable nature of any involvement with the uprising. It was printed separately in 1571 and again in 1573, and then was added to the second book of homilies in 1574, no doubt in response to the rising as well as the publication of the papal bull. Church officials were directed to see that on nine Sundays and holy days in each year, congregations would hear a part of the 1547 Sermon of Obedience and one of the six parts 
of the new sermon of disobedience and willful rebellion. They would then recite prayer for the Queen's safety. And the pamphleteering response echoed the parliamentary campaigns as well at this time. So Thomas Norton, who was a, one of Cecil's uh, parliament men, a man of business, he's being called. He echoed the attack on Catholics who claimed to, to harm Queen Elizabeth by writing a pamphlet and that suggested they'd been deceived by the earls but even if they wanted just a return to the old faith they were still participating in treason finding themselves in plots designed to overthrow the queen bring in enemies from following realms to place mary in elizabeth's place and enrich the earls he outlined discreetly the rebels sought to put mary on the english throne and Norton does not refer directly to Mary or a character. He still had to be careful, you see, because Elizabeth was still a little bit sort of... Uh, she didn't want to see monarchs attacked in print. And But he, he suggests she was a figurehead, an inspiration for the rebellion. God save the Queen. They have plainly showed it. It is not our Queen, Queen Elizabeth, that they mean. That's what Norton writes. But the additions to the Treasons Bill of 1571 were even too extreme. To the for the moderate fairly moderate queen who said some one learned man who put to the bill the other bill additional we misliked it very much not being of the mind to offer extreme injury to any person so you know there's elizabeth for you at this point so we can see how where we're going with propaganda they need to try and get some kind of persuasion into elizabeth and her closest confidants to try and get her to actually do something about mary so the government also continues a, a propaganda campaign so um again sedition uh, norton writes about sedition after the papal bull and so on and there's a lot of print that comes out um, a, there's a lot of varying literacy that comes out after the queen's excommunication as well there's different forms of, of, of print there's pamphlets there's in in sort of octavo form quarto form and also folio books and some of them bound so there are small book there are books of various sizes and prices that come out after this they're printed it might be a verbal sermon that's later printed or it might be just something that's that's, that's produced or even translated and, and, and this brings us then to a bit, a bit further to uh, to what buchanan who george buchanan is so I'll, I'll outline buchanan and who he was and he was a a scotsman who was from a humble background he was the son of a farmer but by the age of 14 he was studying in paris he then came back to scotland i think and then to ayrshire and then he went back to uh, to france again he studied again at st andrews studied at bordeaux and paris he had professorships in bordeaux and paris in, in later life and at Coimbra in Portugal as well. But he was also imprisoned by the Inquisition in Portugal for his religious views. He'd also uh, translated the Psalms of David into Latin. And he becomes a classical tutor to Queen Mary as well. And later, the young James the Sixth of Scotland. He's a, quite a, a brutal. He, he used to beat James, apparently, and that when he got his Latin translations wrong and so on. But he was a very, very much a Latin humanist scholar. In many ways, he shared a lot with, with William Cecil as well. So he was linked to the English Privy Council as well, though, because the English Privy Council lists him as one of two influential Scottish figures at court. In June 1574, he was seen to be fit to be entertained, and he was listed to be paid £100 for his services, an equivalent sum of some of the earls on James's council. So that he, he was he was known to the, uh, the the English Privy Council and and uh, as well, you know, he shares his Cicero and humanism with 
Cecil. So you've already noted the fact that even with all of this going on, Elizabeth was still a little reluctant to kind of take the next step. And so her Privy Council really kind of convinces her or, you know, pressures her to summon Parliament in early 1572. So I just want to touch on this a little bit. So on 13th of May, the Privy Council presents their case basically, against Mary. So what were the main allegations that they decided to focus on? Because there's obviously a lot that they could tease out, but what were the, the main allegations? So the main allegations, yeah, the, the, the Parliament, there's a lot of visceral hatred of Mary uh, displayed in the parliamentary proceedings of May and June 1572. And as we will see, a lot of the arguments reflect the, the libel propaganda and, 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 and other prop verse libels and, and other propaganda later on. And of course, there's also the allegations from the casket letters as well, the Mary's casket letters that we haven't really touched on, but they also come out again at this particular point in Parliament. So the main allegations, um, so it's a question of religion extricably linked, linked with the political faith of the Protestant realm. And we have a lot of discourse here, which is called polyvocal discourse. Not quite, it's a bit fake news, is, is another word for that. So on the, on the 15th of May, Thomas Norton, uh, who was known, as we've just seen him, but he was known for his anti-Catholic position in the Commons, called for Mary's execution as a necessity for Elizabeth's safety because of the links between Mary, the plan to marry Norfolk, and the Ridolfi plot. Norfolk also condemned Mary as a traitor, a monstrous and huge dragon, who was born out of kind, and it was a position echoing the, these libels and the, and the words that we will see in propaganda. And he added, in order to bind that Scottish woman, the Duke of Norfolk's mischief had to be rem remedied by his execution. And likewise in the Lords, the Bishop of London, Edwin Sandys, suggested with some ferocity that the pressing cause was to forthwith cut off the Scottish Queen's head. The Catholicism and French-Scottish nationality of Mary was in part explains why she was labelled a traitor. As the dualities of these elements, Mary was opposed to Protestant England. For Elizabethan Protestants, Mary Stuart represented ambition, lust and political treachery, a fear that was not extinguished until her execution. At the session of the 13th of May, Sir Richard Gallis, the obscure MP for New Windsor, echoed accusations in the casket letters and Buchanan's narrative. He began by comparing Mary to Clytemnestra, the adulteress who mur murdered her husband to rule with her lover and now threatened the Elizabethan succession. Gallus noted Parliament had acted swiftly enough in dealing with Mary and implored necessary provision in outlining why Mary should be dealt with. She had been a killer of her husband, an adulteress, which doth consequently follow murder, a common disturber of the peace in this realm, and for that to be dealt with as an enemy. And therefore my advice is to cut off her head and make no more ado about her. On the 26th of May, in the Lords, the bishops began their arguments against Mary, which they presented to both houses. Marvellous providence, they argued, had put Mary, a grievous offender, into the hands of Elizabeth for severe punishment of the highest of David, including adultery, murder, conspiracy, treasons and blasphemies against God also. If she escaped punishment, they reasoned, God would reserve her as an instrument to plague the unthankful and naughty subjects for their disobedience of his commands. So those are the main sort of charges. Yeah, so huge pressure really on Elizabeth to, to act and do something is what I'm hearing, obviously. So, but given that she was still reluctant because Mary was an anointed queen like herself, how did she react to all of this? 
And and what was the outcome? Was there any outcome from this session or was it just left hanging? Well, bishops warn her in action may be responsible for the collapse in order, divine and temporal, for not administering God's justice, as we've just seen. And um, there's other, again, this echoes some of the, uh, a lot of the propaganda that, that comes out at the time. Thomas Diggs, the MP for Wallingford, as we know, who was, he was Cecil's client, he repeated you know, the opinion, and on the 31st of May stated such villainous practices as those shown by Norfolk and Mary made the Queen unsafe, and he was sorry to see Her Majesty so uncareful of her own safety, which is not just private personal safety, but she's also the pillar on which God's church in Christendom as this day chiefly leaneth. She was the only shield of all faithful and true Christian English subjects. So her downfall would mean the downfall of the true church and subversion of the imperial crown of England, especially the Scot living. And Thomas Dannett, MP for Maidstone, uh, agreed and pined he should, she should execute Mary or Norfolk, both in honour and in conscience. Otherwise, Her Majesty's preachers will be discredited and nobles that have condemned Norfolk will be dishonoured. And the final bill presented on 25th of June called for the severest punishment. Norfolk argued Mary should be tried as a Scottish subject and not as a prince of this realm, so she could make it easier to sort of condemn her for treason. It reiterated the fears of violent events in Scotland, the murders, conspiracies and plots might be wrought in England against Elizabeth in future. The bill suggests to Elizabeth Mary's execution was in her interests, but it remained her decision since the bill could not pass without her royal assent. The bill expired without Elizabeth's agreement to pass it. Elizabeth only knew only too well if an anointed sovereign was executed. It wouldn't stop with Mary and may set a precedent. Elizabeth refused to consider the advice regarding Mary in the bill. It would have been politically dangerous with the ascendancy of the Guise in France to have publicly executed Mary in England. So Henry Killigrew was sent to Scotland. He was the ambassador to negotiate her return for trial. Elizabeth, as, Neil, as John Neal suggests, momentarily surrendered and agreed a secret plan to return Mary to Scotland if she would be put to death immediately by the Scottish Parliament. However, events didn't turn out as calamitously for Mary as she may have feared. Parliament was twice prorogued and eventually to the exasperation of, of Lord Burley, William Cecil, the bill just simply expired. So this may suggest Mary's worth more to the English crown alive than dead as she aroused patriotic feeling amongst Englishmen. She bound Queen Privy Council and Commons together and helped stoke the English siege mentality against the threat of Catholic Europe. However, Cecil was exasperated with Elizabeth's inaction on Mary and claimed to Walsingham that the highest person in the land had failed to slay the serpent and privately criticised her folly and errors in dealing with her cousin. However, on the 4th of June, of course, we must add that the Duke of Norfolk was executed. You know, he was the compromise for Parliament. So it sounds like they uh, made a bit of an example of the Duke of Norfolk. So clearly the tension must have been palpable at this point with the Queen still reluctant to take a public stance against Mary. Obviously, she's not wanting to do that for all those reasons you just mentioned. Did this reluctance and the frustration that must have been taking place did this lead to a more intense wave of anti-Marian propaganda? And did the focus of the propaganda change or was it similar to before the parliament? There is a, the same thread running through, but the propaganda following parliament, they do talk about Mary being still alive, a lot of the uh, propagandists. And uh, I'll just highlight a few, but it's mixed in then with the Guise involvement of the, with the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which happened on the 24th of August, 1572. At that time, luckily for Mary, because I'm sure she would have been executed if that had happened, say on the 24th of May or April, or maybe even June, just before, before parliament closed. So, um, 
this takes attention to the France and the Low Countries, the Guise and the Spanish plot was at the forefront of minds, Protestant minds. But Mary is still implicated in the history of the French religious wars as well by Huguenot propagandists in France and the later anti-Anjou propaganda, which is patroned by Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester. So he patrons John Stubbs, for example, the Gaping Gulf, which was the anti-Anjou pamphlet that came out in 1579. But that pamphlet does hark back to the Northern Rising and the um, Bartholomew's Day Massacre and Mary and, the, in, and Rodolphe and Mary and the plotting. So that, that, you know, a lot of later things do allude back. Um, there's a lot of Machiavellian intrigue, tyranny and murderous duplicity in a lot of these tracts as well. And the world, again, is divided into persecutors and martyrs. A lot of it is French. Uh, it's translated and printed by Huguenot exiles in London, such as the printer Thomas Votrolia is, is involved, who gets a patent and in, in the Blackfriars district. And after, the, and after this, uh, so there's Jean Dissert's History of the Wars of Religion. There's Louis Regnier de la Plance, uh, Le Lodigeon, de Cardinal Le Frere and Robert Semples, a new ballot set out by a fugitive Scottishman that fled out of Paris at this late murder. Uh, Semple was a Scottish Protestant, a, a court poet and controversialist, controversialist sorry, and uh, this was published at St Andrews. He may not have been there, he was just writing about what he'd heard, perhaps. Um, so, And he writes other anti-Marian propaganda as well, Semple. Catherine de Medici's responsibility for the massacre is, is the main theme for Semple, but he also talks about the Guise faction and, and so on. And, and De La Planche focuses on Mary being a parody of Our Lady of Grace. And these pamphlets were produced mainly, this is, these pamphlets are from about 1572 up to about 1576, these ones I've highlighted here. And they were translated and circulated in court and then later on sale. So they're, you know, they're, they're made for sale. They go around court, right, but also yeah. taverns and so on. Yeah, I was going to ask you that if people had to purchase them or if they were just handed out for free. So, yeah, that's great to cover that. And interesting that you mentioned that Robert Dudley was obviously a patron of some of this propaganda. I'd love to hear about who else maybe was involved. It sounds like a very organised attack almost. So who was spearheading this? And was, for example, William Cecil part of this? Yes, William Cecil is um, mainly involved as well, especially at the, earlier on. Cecil's got a lot of uh, fingers in many pies. He's got informants across Europe, uh, in Scotland. You know, the ambassadors are writing back to him. He's got people in the uh, the Marshalsea prison. Uh, partly, part of the Rodolphe plot is, is, is broken by a man called uh, William Hurl. He's, he's originally in prison for debt, but he becomes, he writes to Cecil saying that he will do work for him in, in prison. If, if possible, he's, he's trying to pay back this debt to the crown, I think it is. Um, and Cecil then say, OK, listen out, you know, for, for whatever's going on. And he gets put in cells close to the Bishop of Ross, for example, and tries to write and writes back what he hears and, and so on. The Bishop of Ross has been arrested for his part in, in, in the Rodolphe plot and, and, and letters. It's a, quite a, con that is a convoluted plot, but that's what happens there. So Cecil's got his men around. He's the consummate manager of the Elizabethan realm. And this has been written lately by um, Norman Jones about him managing the realm. He was a devotee of Ciceronian public values and carried a copy of De Officis, 
where an obligation to protect the public good was a key aspect of political decision-making. And Cecil's knowledge of Cicerone and Roman public virtue drove his own beliefs regarding political management. His use of parliamentary lobbying, speeches and client networks are well known to students, historians and students of Tudor political history. What is less well known is Cecil's use and manipulation of propaganda and persuasion in print and manuscript media. This omission is somewhat surprising given Cicero's own use of persuasive rhetoric both in oratory and written word but was not lost on Cecil and influenced his approach to political debate and discourse. His use of print and manuscript media seems to have worked with which was officially discussed in Parliament and political correspondence. It influenced debate and pushed proclamations and laws passed in Parliament and nudged other decision-making in the required direction usually with the subjugation of enemies of the Protestant state or realm as the intended target such as Mary. Elizabeth I, who he positioned ideologically at the centre of a public political realm, was not always consistent in her own decision-making, so he needed to persuade her as much as other members of the court, parliament or wider public to act in what he believed was in the interests of the realm. Therefore, his dissemination of propaganda plays a key role in the larger political sphere of management of the realm. So a lot of that, you know, the aim is to persuade and propagate myths about perceived or real enemies of the realm, especially domestic and foreign Catholics. And the management of perception and public sphere wax and wanes between Machiavellian propaganda and the positive astral plane of Gloriana's noblesse. As Cecil's only too aware the Elizabethan regime and the realm was difficult to manage and its realisation was made in the years of crisis from 1568 to 72. Cecil had to shape public perception that the state was protecting and promoting the common good. This meant that Cecil mobilised all means of communication, including presses, pulpits, proclamations, progresses, and even executions. Example um, we can look at is his link to the printer John Day. He was uh, the Lincolnshire printer John Day. And another printer called William Sears. And then there's John Fox, author of the Protestant polemic Acts of Monuments, which was known as the Book of Martyrs. And that sort of, uh, back in the reign of Queen Mary, John Day had, had been a tenant on, on Cecil's land in Lincolnshire. He'd, he'd had a, a bar home, which was four miles from Cecil's seat outside Stamford, now Burley House. And uh, at the time, Day was chief printer to Fox as well in 15... In, that was in the 1550s. But this, these client relationships fuel what happens later on. And, and by 1570, Day is chief printer to Fox. Cecil and hot Protestant, the hot Protestant Archbishop Matthew Parker as well. He's got patronage from both of them, John Day has, and he's crucial to the regime. Uh, he's been said he's crucial to the regime, in addition to being a successful individual in the London book trade, providing pro-Elizabethan Episcopal propaganda, as well as the anti-Catholic polemic. Cecil has emerged as a more Protestant figure who was concerned regarding the Queen's tendency to drag her feet regarding certain matters of religion. Examples elsewhere show John Stubbs received patronage from Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, as I've previously alluded to. Political puritanism of the Le Leicester Walsingham Axis and Cecil's robust Protestantism were dominant features in the landscape of the patronage of polemical print at this time. And it extends into the works such as Edmund Spencer's canonical work, the Shepherd's Calendar and the Fairy Queen later on as well. One can acknowledge the insecurity and anxiety against both domestic and foreign Catholic uncertainties regarding loyalty to the realm which propels such printed matter. And it was Day as well who pr printed the detection of the doings of Mary, Queen of Scots, which was Buchanan's pamphlet, although no other name or, or place of print did appear on the, on the work. 
So they do keep it as anonymous as they can, to keep it out of the clutches of particularly Elizabeth if it gets back to her. Because again, an attack on a monarch has implications for her and her own safety. And so when the people were preparing this type of propaganda, was the hope that it would convince Elizabeth herself? Was she the intended audience? Or was it more that perhaps if the general public starts agreeing with these notions or people at court, that might then convince Elizabeth to to do something? Or was it a mixture of all of these? I think it's a mixture. So, so it's not surprising to learn there was a spike in printed tracts around parliamentary proceedings. The Queen, Court and Parliament were the initial audiences of the propaganda. Much of it initially circulated through the court in manuscript form, then was circulated more widely via print. Elizabethan governments relied on multifarious means to encourage or co-orders compliance to their orders. And it might mean employing a combination of moral authority uh, or physical coercion, personal appeal, while identifying a recognisable commonality of interest between the rulers and at least some of the ruled. Parliament was the highest arena of political debate and even political theatre, and it operated at times in tension with the will of, the, of Queen Elizabeth, as we've seen with, you know, with the reluctance to execute Mary. Lacking a robust centralised state administration, members of the Privy Council were only too aware of the need to cement order in the realm or coerce a reluctant Queen to agree. Existing strands of political thought mechanisms plus social structures would need to be exploited. The reality was complex. Elizabethan government was not a rigid binary opposition between the governors and the governed. The relationship was fluid and organic organic, even if the hegemony remained balanced in favour of the ruling elite, usually starting with the crown. So, you know, it does go through through various, I, I suppose, stages of, of society. And it is, overall, it is to um, get as many people on side. They understood if you could get the mob involved or engaged or the general public engaged, and which they would be through the uh, St Paul's Cross sermons, for example, some of this went there, or was at least repeated there, then you would get the public on side as well. And that can be then used to try and, um, you know, persuade Queen Elizabeth to act in a certain way on a certain subject. So I suppose the, the million dollar question or maybe billion dollar question, did it work? Or was the we probably, most of the listeners probably know what uh, Mary Queen of Scots's fate was. But was this, do you think, partly because of this propaganda push or did something else turn Elizabeth? I think over the time, uh, these issues, which are highlighted by the polemicists and other writers of propaganda and polemic, which is anti-Marian and anti-Catholic, over the greater course of time, as you've said, it, I think it did have an, an impact. I think early in the 1570s, the confessional position of England was not clear-cut, and I think that's an important thing to say. In many areas of the north and the west of England, Catholics were still in the cultural majority, uh, noticeable the Queen as well never ventured, Queen Elizabeth never ventured on progress west of Bristol or north of Stafford. And the impact was much slower, I think. The important thing is the impact is slower in terms of chronological time. So without tech to spread words in minutes and seconds, uh, you know, we can't, I think that's the, th the thing to understand. I think things move so much more slowly in pre-industrial society. So you, you can't get the... Um, you know the impact now like even the printing presses couldn't print that many uh, copies of of things and they couldn't and it took a long time to to disseminate them even across europe or, or even across our own country so it had a slower impact i mean i mean just to highlight something there's something went viral from a parish council meeting in cheshire in on twitter that wasn't meant to it was a complete 
car crash of a meeting. It's, it's already uh, within 24 hours. They, people have manufactured memes and various things around it. That's just an example of how things could just blow completely. You know, within a day now, something someone can be vilified forever. Whereas it took a longer time in pre-industrial society and it did spread word the catholics whether domestic or foreign were a threat to protestant england and many or foreign protestants even because many of those had settled in england as well you know french and dutch calvinists for example huguenots and it culminated i think in the 1584 bond of association which forbade catholic influence in the privy council and also put a price on anyone's head who questioned the queen's succession celebrated mass and so on or gave public support to Mary Stuart and so on and, and plotted to remove Elizabeth and, and put Mary in her place and I think the Babington plot of 1586 which obviously leads to uh, Mary's execution in February 1587 that you know the punishment meeting there is an, is an example of that I think it gets worse for Catholics definitely from this point but I think you really see it in the 1580s especially after the bond of association and around that time and and the death of William of Orange is also an, a, a, an alarm bell monarchs can actually be killed by Catholic insurgents as they might see it so uh, yeah and, it, and then of course you get the war with Spain after after the Armada the various Armadas I should add and by the 17th century, I think, as the gunpowder plotters found to their cost, militant Catholicism had no support, you know, from Catholics as well. So I think that was the start of England becoming a more Protestant realm. It definitely sounds like there was a turning point, doesn't it, in that in that period, definitely. Now, I, I liked when you were talking about the types of propaganda. There were lots of P words that you mentioned, pulpit, proclamations, pamphlets. Do you want to tell us about maybe a couple of specific examples? So there's three main things, I think, that do get focused on in the prop pamphlets, the propaganda and the polemic that comes out. is uh, Mary's Catholicism, which is we might not be surprised with. There's the adultery and the alleged witchcraft through the murder and the murder of Darnley as well. So they quickly seize on the controversies surrounding Mary and they blacken her reputation fairly quickly. And, it, and this happens before she's in England, actually. So from 1565, there is a pamphlet written, a libel poem written by Thomas Jenny. And he happened to be an employee of Cecil. And he was in, in Scotland and uh, with, with uh, Thomas Randolph um, as well. And he wrote Master Randolph's Fantasy. That was what the, the title was. And it presents Mary as a sensual, wanton and irresponsible individual determined to seek out subject to all the sword that impugned my will or resisted my word. So the libel entitled, which is Master Randolph's Fantasy, purports to be an account by Thomas Randolph, Elizabeth's ambassador in Scotland. And it deals with the causes and consequences of the marriage to Darnley and the civil turmoil, which follows her then over the next few months. Jenny compares the her, with the lives of several historical tyrants before focusing on the main negative. The narrator of Randolph's fantasy is sent to sleep and he's woken by Mary and symbolically seduced. The central theme of the poem was the mistaken marriage which Mary had chosen following her lust and passion above reason given Darnley's own weaknesses and Mary is portrayed as being inflamed by rigour and hate but above all the Protestant Marais' constant faith and ardent zeal to truth. So she was putting herself opposite truth 
the Protestant truth in that. So that's the one allegation. So in the text as well, Mary seduces Randolph, who, according to the narrative, was placed in a stupor. This implied there were supernatural charms at play. Sinful lust and prodigious sexual desire were often cited as evidence of witchcraft. It was a charge led against Catholics, particularly Catholic priests, too. In a recent article, in addition to this, Glyn Parry notes that Cecil from the early 1560s had spread rumours Mary was a witch to diminish her reputation and therefore preclude her from the succession and lead to her execution. He also argues Randolph knew which way Cecil wanted the story to be spun, which was to gather evidence portraying Mary as a witch, and therefore Cecil reverses Scottish reports that suggested Mary was an innocent victim of witchcraft at this time, seduced by charms when she fell in love with Darley, and altered the perspective of the information sent by Thomas Randolph. Cecil, though, had to be cautious, but this is a further sign his hand was also involved with Jenny. So and that's all, that's that one. And they also there's other Robert Semple and John Pickering also also write other other propaganda. And John Pickering's a new interlude of vice containing Orestes shown at the English court in later '67. He wrote he wrote that and implied Mary was involved again in that. And Pickering would also draft a petition for the Mary's execution in 1586, later on. So in the late 1560s, he was a courtly playwright and a lawyer at Lincoln's Inn, which was an institution known for anti-Marian sentiments. In a new interlude, this play, Clyman Testra's portrayal is claimed by one literary scholar to clearly have a political purpose. The regicide come husband killer, Clytemnestra is portrayed as an unnatural mother and Orestes seeks support from King Idomenus to dispatch his mother. The unnatural could be a tautological slip, meaning unnatural. It also reveals Orestes' unnatural slip into vice. This could have been the English courtly audience, given a courtly audience a conundrum to consider what might they think of foreign, a foreign monarch seeking help and how should the crime be revenged. Cathy Schrank underlines how the play perceives a revenge meaning justice or political revenge. And Clytemnestra is then quickly dispatched without due process, echoing the call from other ballads and members of the lower house in the parliamentary sessions for Mary's execution. The one I'd like to look at, though, is uh, by uh, George Buchanan, because that's really uh, interesting. Um, and again, it follows what we've had from Thomas Jenny and this play here, uh, where Mary is sort of covertly implied in in, in, um, in Pickering's play but uh, this is the real damning one and this came as a originally was uh, written in Latin in manuscript form it accompanied the, the casket letters of the trials in York and Westminster as well it was all part of the evidence it was sort of filed away until 1571 after the Rudolphi plot when it went again circulated it was translated by Thomas Smith Sorry, Thomas Wilson, I think, Cecil's right-hand man, another man of business, like he had Thomas Norton at his side. That was translated in 1571, around the time of Rodolphe Plot, so it was obviously being used again. And some of these other libels also just also end up being circulated again and again. So this, you know, the, there's again, it's all it's all sort of about Mary's uh, involvement as as an adulteress and, and a schemer and, and and so on. Buchanan, in one scene, this this is indicating that she's also her adulterous desire. She's also pimping, being pimped, or and allowing herself to be pimped in a detection of the doing of Mary Queen of Scots by George Buchanan. And Buchanan is suggesting that Mary is 
this whore and, and murderess like Clytemnestra. So it's uh, said to offer, obviously, it's, a, it's again further proof of the propaganda machine at work. As I said, it originally accompanied the casket letters and the conferences to the parliamentary debate. So it was, it was an example of covert sponsorship. And the Latin title is De Maria Scotorum, uh, Mrs. Buchanan. And it was printed by John Day and translated by Thomas Wilson. Although there's no indicated author, volume or space or a publication noted, but it was not publicly sold as it was still risky to Cecil, for Cecil to openly call for Mary's indictment. Therefore, Cecil began circulating the English version in the court in London uh, by about 1571, time to exploit the Rodolphi plot fallout and the arrest of Thomas Howard the fourth Duke of Norfolk. So widening the readership was Burley's objective, Cecil or Burley's objective, uh, acting on the advice of his colleague to besmirch Mary's reputation home and abroad as well. That was the, the reason. Claims Mary and Bothwell have an affair uh, in 1566, in June 1566, and plot, start plotting Darnley's murder. Then um, the Queen travels on holiday with Bothwell, which also shows her not being very queenly, not going on progress, she's doing it covertly. In the detection, Buchanan claims this and says, she went down to the waterside at a place called the New Haven, and while all marvelled while she was went in sick haste, she suddenly entreated onto a ship, where there prepared for her was um, the quick ship was provided by William Blackater, Edmund Blackater, Leonard Robertson and Thomas Dixon, Bothwell's servants and famous robbers and pirates. With this trade of thieves, all honest men wondering at it, she betook herself to the sea, not talking another with, taking another with her, now out of a gentleman, nor necessary attendance for common honesty. So this is another stage of the narrative. It can be there's a diversion between Mary and Elizabeth's royal behaviour here as well. There's also uh, another comic scene in it where she's half dressed and trying to get out of an, a first floor window, which Buchanan's writing about, and again with Margaret Carwood. It's supposed to be on the, the they're celebrating Margaret Carwood marriage, which was uh, uh, the following day after Darnley's murder. So she's celebrating while Darnley is dead and implicated in being again with Bothwell. So there's all of this tack on Mary. It's all about her virtue. Was the ver virtue means manly as well? You know the Roman, the Latin term for virtue. It's, it's not the way a, a royal monarch should behave and that's I think the key. And Buchanan himself was, um, he was a humanist scholar uh, as well as a, he, did, he was a Calvinist but I think he's coming at this about the Queen being self-serving rather than for the pub, working for the public good which Ciceronian with C people who knew their Cicero would know that he projected the public good above everything else. Um, we've talked about some links between print and the parliamentary proceedings. Were there any, do we see any more evidence of this um, later on in Elizabeth's reign or at any point? does carry on later on, but I think it's quite, it's quite marked in the early 1570s in, in particular. I think this is because Mary, of course, is under house arrest anyway. She's being watched very closely later on, and by that time, Sir Francis Walking Walsingham's the main secretary, and, and you know, sort of his intelligence is very, uh, very important to keeping things on, you know, very, very under wraps. I mean, there is anti-Marian propaganda, but a lot of the later uh, propaganda is again is anti-Jesuit as well, and. Uh, when the Jesuits and seminary priests come in, 
I'm still to do a lot of research on that period, so I'll probably find out a lot more yeah. <laughs> and come out with it a lot more. I'm, I'm, I'm researching up to the Parliament of 1581. So, you know, a, a lot of the, the spikes probably around the 1584 Parliament in relation to the Bond of Association do see another spike, I think, of, of from what I understand, of, of anti-Marian print, but also a lot of anti-Catholic print and beyond. And then, of course, England's at war with Spain from 1585. So, again, you know, there's a, there's a, a plethora then of that. But this is the first real sort of, you know, these, these sort of four years from Mary coming, fleeing Scotland and, be, and being in England, to you know the 1572 parliament but then and some bartholomew after that yeah. i think the the real years of crisis and perhaps into 1570 the mid 1570s as well i know there's a lot of talk about again in the 1576 parliament about what should be done in in the low countries with the spaniards as well obviously elizabeth covertly supports the the, the dutch uh, rebels the sea beggars and, and and things like that you know to try and um, at, at certain points, but she again doesn't really want to support rebels against monarchs, which is a, a, a key point. Okay, and I was just thinking about what, in terms of the pamphlets and all the propaganda material, does it give us any other information about, the, you know, the people of the time, the culture of the time at all? Any insights? I think the one in, there's a couple of um, things that I've drawn out from this, and maybe things will come more apparent later as well but but as I, as I can see I think they tell the pamphlets tell us that it was a public sphere laced with more and more public political discourse that's what I think from court to tavern and marketplace than ever before I think discussions of news and political intrigue home and abroad uh, via these pamphlets and other mediums as well informed many levels of society in regards to the perceived threats of catholicism and the struggle of protestant england and sometimes her protestant brethren overseas to the threats of the papacy and catholic enemies a variety of printed tracts in terms of literal levels price and size of the books themselves or pamphlets themselves inform the public about the intrigues of court and sovereigns and parliament as wished for by authors and creators of such material there's a lot of there's a big hunger as well for news from various parts of the of Europe and and their own realms and it is also where oral and written discourse intersected by that i mean sermons at st paul's cross could be printed or propaganda from drama for example would would end up being printed as well and and things like that so that's the first bit but i think more importantly they also show us that what we can now call a misogynistic patriarchal culture um, misogyny of course is a 21st century 20th or 21st century uh, label really but it does show us that there's a misogynistic patriarchal culture where women were still not seeing as beings which could make their own choices without being vilified for them and this is demonstrated by a print in two ways if a woman made her own sexual choices she was a whore adulteress or a witch as mary was labeled likewise if a female monarch didn't marry or secure the succession then she was under fire from her ministers the patriarchal realm had to attempt to control women and their choices at various levels and that's how what i've deduced yeah. from reading close reading of some of these pamphlets Absolutely. And you've been so, so generous with your time and your expertise, but I have one more question for you. I just, I was thinking about the propaganda and, and wondering, 
you know, we've talked about pamphlets and the, the pulpit and all that sort of thing. Was did do we see it at work in any other kind of art form, theatre? You did mention theatre before. Any art or even court ceremony was were the propaganda wheels turning there as well? Yes, I think we do see that. Um, just very briefly on that, really. I think the obvious ones are obviously the portraits of the Gloriana myth. I mean, these are later in the 1580s when the Armada threat is ratcheted up and so on, the later 1580s. Drama is, is definitely, I think, a, ve a very, very common one uh, in the court, the street or the tavern. And of course, after 1576 in London, there's the theatre. Courtly progresses are another one because that really shows the uh, majesty of of, and and so on of the Queen, as do triumphal entrances uh, that promotes the sovereign and, and and perhaps you might say the the Protestant regime. Obviously, the pulpit again with with Protestant proclamations and so on. But also, I think importantly, one one that sticks out for me is the uh, the Ascension Day tilts, which is a, a nod to the medieval chivalric code, and those were first introduced in November 1570 to celebrate and commemorate Elizabeth's accession to the throne and solidify her position as rightful monarch before the Pope, Philip II and the Guise, you know, basically Catholic Europe as well. And perhaps it persuades some English Catholics then not to obstruct or oppose the succession and the Queen and her government in general. And that, that's there to, to, to sort of celebrate the monarch, really. And I think those are the things. I mean, you've got, there's various printed stuff, you know, like, is you know prose poetry and, and plays of course and it does seem to filter through it's a two-way process it filters both ways i think sometimes it's very hard isn't it to, to really work out how it exactly works you can only just speculate really it's a moot point how for example how successful it was because we we can't really measure that necessarily we can look at the what was what was sold and and so on but we can't you know we know there were lots of bookshops in and printers around near to you know in the vicinity of the stationers company which is near to st paul's cathedral so st paul's churchyard you know i mean john day actually had a bookshop there that cecil was trying to get enlarged in, and he was trying to get him another one and the mayor there was a bit of a thing with the mayor of london and they and they turned it down yeah amazing fascinating thank you so much for that's i found this so illuminating and i've really learned a lot so so thank you so much for your time there is one other thing we do on episodes of talking tutors if you have the time mark and that's just yes, what yeah. i call a quick game of 10 to go so these are just 10 quick questions just to get to know you a little bit better so first one do you hopefully you remember sometimes people have trouble remembering these things but the last no. book that you read i can see lots of books behind you uh, yeah, and there's a lot of piles in the room, the other side of the wall, that side. Um, yeah, I've been working, obviously, I was I was working on this, I'm working on, on, on research. I've read uh, quite a bit on Mary Stewart. I've read a little bit of John Guy's book over the last week, My Heart is My Own. And also uh, John R. Staines' book on, it's about Mer the propaganda surrounding Mary Queen of Scots and Ashgate uh, volume. Those are the ones that I've lately been reading elsewhere i've just been reading a lot but the the one thing i've been reading for fun is reynard the fox anna louise avery and she's um rewritten it in sort of prose story form because it was a poem so she's uh and it's, and it's i've been reading a chapter every evening that's good isn't it to get the mind off the research a little bit <laughs> yeah 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 so that's been quite nice actually Excellent. And what about your favourite subject at school? Did you did one stand out for you? Yeah, I, I probably all, always history to, to an extent, I would say. I actually left school at 16. 
I went to do A-levels at 21, so I had a gap. I would say that the, the, the subjects that I studied were at A-level, history, English literature and sociology, and, and those things interest me now, you know. What about a movie, or if not a movie, a series that you've watched more than once? I would say, and I, this is historical, well, there's a few things, actually. I do, and I mean, I'll go for some historical ones and, and then perhaps something else. But yeah, um, I think Natalie Zimon, the, the film based on Natalie Zimon Davis's book, The Return of Martin Gare. So Martin Gare is, is, uh, is the film I've watched quite a few times. I think that gives you a good idea as well to get into the mindset, of actually, of 16th century people in general. And Elizabeth R., the series Elizabeth R. with Glenda Jackson, as well just on the uh, martin gare thing i have actually visited the, the village where he came from i managed to do a road trip in france a couple of, well 2014 and did a detour to, to get there <laughs> so i managed to find it well that's actually a great segue to my next question which was about um a historic site that you'd like to visit you've already mentioned you're surrounded by history do you have a a kind of favorite historic site i do like kenilworth castle locally that's probably probably the pick I think Warwick Castle has got a little bit too much like a theme park. And, yes, a lot, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's a view shared by a lot of local Warwick people. They don't quite like that very often, but it's nice to go around. Obviously, it's a fantastic building, great view of it as well. I like going to Stratford-upon-Avon. Unfortunately, obviously, with COVID, there's been no... I've not seen a play now since the end of 2019. But, um, you know, I usually go there, walk around. I used to be a guide, actually, at Shakespeare's birthplace. Uh, for a while and um, so I, I was a costume guide as well you know dressed a bit like a person in a Bruegel painting so yeah so that was that that that's one I, I think I think you know beyond that you know there's there's cathedrals I've always loved going to ch parish churches but also cathedrals so when I was in when I've been to France or or Germany I've always gone and, and visited those places I've always gone or a castle uh, you know some somewhere historic and what would be an ideal Sunday morning for you? An ideal Sunday morning? Well, um, perhaps just tea, maybe a nice breakfast, the newspapers, some reading, uh, yeah. some books, a bit of music, a bit of jazz or sort of thing in the background or a bit of sort of Japanese. I like Japanese ambient music as well at the moment. I'm listening to some of that while I study. But yeah, that would be nice. And with the cats, because we've got two cats. <laughs> They're not in at the moment, but kept them out while I was on this. Yes. <laughs> Well, that sounds really, really lovely. And what is a dream holiday destination for you? I've been lucky enough to do a bit of travelling from, from time to time. I think Japan is a fantastic country. America, the States, New York's a really fascinating city, really like New York. Everything about it, you know, the, I think culturally New York's really rich. I love London and Paris, you know, as well, you know. And, and at the moment, I mean, the last holiday I managed to get away for, for last year, 2019, I went to the Ardèche. I've got friends with a, a place in the Ardèche and we stand, stay down there in France. And that is fantastic. It's just these huge, steep ravines everywhere. It's quite primordial. You know, the geology of the area is fascinating. And it's also the near, not that far away from there is the source of the Loire that starts in the Ardèche as well. So you've got, that. that's great. The Loire Valley too, of course, you know, I would say is another one. There's, there's just so loads. many places, <laughs> not enough time. Not and, enough. And who, if you were going to be stuck in a lift for a whole day with somebody, 
from any period, let's pick, do any period of history, who would be? Oh, there's a, again, there's, there's <laughs> so many, not just, not just 16th and 17th century no. people, either, but yeah, there's huge amounts. I mean, um, you know, I think if we, perhaps, a, perhaps if it was a Tudor statesman, I, I think Walsingham or Cecil would be quite oh, interesting. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. Um, maybe even Thomas Cromwell. Um, that'd be good too (laughs) yeah yeah i think Karl marx would be um martin luther king people like that you know um yeah there'd be definitely a lot to talk about wouldn't they (laughs) elizabeth the first herself of course and and, um yeah i think uh emmeline pankhurst so many isn't there yeah think about that true and lucky last what advice would you give your younger self if you had the opportunity probably to have got to university and done my qualifications a bit quicker i think being a bit more focused but that that's the uh, probably the only thing i think i would yeah. I, I would have said you know and you know i'm pretty content with how it's working out anyway so awesome and i think that you know it offers inspiration to other people perhaps listening that maybe left school early or might want to return to study i certainly did at a mature age student at university it's always possible which is great i don't plan to ever stop learning so that's me no it's i mean actually actually natalie zimon davis uh, um, gave a, a lecture where she talks about lifelong learning and learning never stops and she's still right writing in her 80s that to me was was quite inspirational and also thought you know because some people say oh you're too old to do that but nobody's too old to do anything i am a history teacher um although i'm I'm furloughed at the moment and i had some students i was working up until october and i had some students who i was doing a level history with and they were a bit panicky and i just said look you know even if you have to take a year or two out it's a pandemic you know you can go back to it i know it's not what they want probably want to hear because they've got programmed that they go straight the way through into education but actually if if people can perhaps go and, and do other jobs or or go traveling or or just have other experiences outside of the institution i think that can be really really re- enriching as well and i would say that you know i think sometimes academic life is seen as the be all and end all but it doesn't necessarily have to be and you can learn and write uh, without actually doing that you can be an independent scholar if you wish if you've got the time and the money and and so on or you can take your time there's, there's so many different ways and routes and avenues that you can take absolutely i completely agree with you and very last i promise this is the last thing i always ask my guests for a tutor takeaway so this is something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode sometimes people recommend books or shows to watch or a piece of music to listen to just anything that's going to nurture that love of tutor history do you have a tutor takeaway for us thomas tallis's speminalium as as a takeaway it was played as my wife entered during our wedding uh, i asked that to be played as she came into the uh, into the room into the sort of the hall where we got married so uh, that was the th- that, that's my tutor takeaway and actually was written uh, for thomas howard the duke of norfolk in 1571 and it's it's penitential so he's a bit guilty at the time as well that's a great takeaway. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for so generously sharing of your time and your expertise. I know that our listeners have, have learned a lot and we really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for talking tutors with me. Thank you, Natalie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tutors. 
Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetutortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tutors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.